energy-inducing fun and post it with hashtag LoveFL. However you decide to share a little sunshine, the important part is that you do it. Because keeping all this to yourself, well, that's just not fair. Not fair at all. This message sponsored by Visit Florida, the Florida Association of Broadcasters, and this radio station. Kubota is proud to be driven by perfectionists. They do it right or they don't do it. Perfectionists use the best, whether it's a compact tractor, a zero-turn mower, or diesel utility vehicle. Get some perfection in your world. Find your local Kubota dealer at floridakubotadealers.com. South Florida's only business radio station, 880 AM, The Biz. This is the Wall Street Business Network. South Florida's only business radio station, 880 AM, The Biz. And now, 880 The Biz Traffic. We've got a crash on the Palmetto Expressway northbound south of Northwest 58th Street. Slow traffic back all the way to Doral Boulevard. An accident reported on the Palmetto Expressway northbound between 122nd Street and Northwest 154th Street. portion of the road may be blocked there. The Dolphin Expressway westbound between 95 and the Palmetto Expressway. Traffic slow in that area. You'll find some congestion. Also, an accident that is clear but still very congested. 95 northbound approaching Griffin Road. For more traffic, follow us on on Twitter at Total Traffic MIA. WCAB Sweetwater is 880 AM. The Biz, a service of Salem Media Group and part of the Wall Street Business Network. On Twitter at 880 The Biz. The following program is sponsored by Grant Stern. This is the Only in Miami show, hosted by Grant Stern. Tonight's show is underwritten by Morningside Mortgage Corporation. Morningside Mortgage Corporation keeps the Only in Miami show commercial free. You can find them online at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. That's www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out online. Well, we've got a great show planned for you tonight. Uh, in addition to an amazing studio guest in the first hour, Elizar Mendez, who just left the Daily Business Review for the South Florida Biz Journal. We also have, at the 8 o'clock hour, Saul Simbler. He's a certified mediator, and he is deeply involved in doing business in Cuba. And he has a website called Doing Business Legally in Cuba. We're going to hear from him at the top of the 8 o'clock hour. And then in the second half of the 8 o'clock hour, we're going to speak with Peter Ehrlich. He is a real estate manager and a very, very active citizen throughout Miami-Dade County, and in the city of Miami. And it is going to be a fantastic show, so stay tuned if you're on the road. Take those shoes off, relax, and listen. But this is the part of the show where I get a few minutes to speak directly to you, the audience, about issues of importance that are citywide or sometimes beyond. And as we've spoken about many a time, there are numerous Walmart wars raging throughout South Florida today, Places where Walmart wishes to build their super centers and the neighborhoods are fighting back and saying that they don't want rampant 
overdevelopment in their neighborhoods, and they're saying why. Well, the South Dade Walmart application is deeply stalled right now, and it is being opposed by a neighborhood group called the Miami Pine Rocklands Coalition, which you can find online, and it's led by legendary retired investigative journalist Al Sunshine. However, tonight I really want to turn my attention to Midtown Miami. Midtown Miami is my home. The neighborhood that I am calling Midtown is not just the Midtown Miami project, but what I would call all of Miami between the two interstate highways 395 and 195, bordered by 90 I-95 as well. That area of town encompasses numerous neighborhoods that go by different names. Wynwood, Overtown, Edgewater, Omni. Sometimes it's called the Performing Arts Center District as well. There's the Fashion District. But all of these neighborhoods have, over the course of the last 14 years since I moved to Wynwood in 2001, gelled into one area that I would consider Midtown. All of it. It's in between Miami's Upper East Side, north of 36th Street, and the Design District, Morningside Buena Vista, Lemon City, Little Haiti, and the Morningside neighborhoods, and Shorecrest. It's in between that and downtown, and Park West, and the part of Overtown that was cut off when our city fathers deliberately stuck a highway in the midst of a historic African-American community. But nonetheless, Overtown is part of Midtown because it is in that little box surrounded by highways. It's cut off. And for that reason, it's like an island in and of itself. It's a little area where we all share one space. And Walmart wants to put a store into the middle of that with 40% more loading space, 40% more parking spaces, a slew of really, really poor design decisions, which they were able to ram through the city of Miami's planning process. And frankly, they violated residents' due process of law. And they violated it pretty badly. They did it by sending out notices of a meeting and then withholding all of the plans from the meeting until the residents were literally sitting in the chamber. And that is why the NoWalmartInMidtown.com group has launched a major fundraising appeal and campaign. It is the first one of those campaigns launched by NoWalmartInMidtown.com in nearly four years of struggle against the world's largest retailer and, simultaneously, the city of Miami. At the last court hearing, the city of Miami and Walmart brought eight lawyers. Eight lawyers! That means that they spent nearly $10,000 just on showing up in court and opposing our single lawyer, which we were able to fund through the generous donation of a very few people in Wynwood who have the capacity to make these donations. But we need support. And I say we because I am part of the group, no Walmart and Midtown.com. But it is a group which I support because it is my neighborhood. Midtown, where I live, where all of these people live, whether the neighborhood is called Overtown or Wynwood or 
the arts district or the performing arts district or Edgewater. We are all residents of Midtown. We're all affected by what happens on Miami Avenue and 29th Street. And if these changes are left unopposed, we will suffer the consequences for decades to come. Terrible traffic. Terrible traffic. The, the Midtown neighborhood, the Midtown development, sitting on 57 acres itself, which took $180 million of public funding and spawned both a community redevelopment agency and a community development district, two separately chartered sections of government that both create special tax districts that funded the $180 million that we as taxpayers spent to rehabilitate a 57-acre uh, brownfield and former container yard. That investment would be at risk. And that is why I urge you to please go to nowalmartinmidtown.com and read the story. Go to nowalmartinmidtown.com and check out our fundraiser because this is urgent. We have a deadline, and it is this week. And we need to raise as much capital as humanly possible to pay the two amazing attorneys of Dubbin and Kravitz who have agreed to take the case. So please go to nowalmartinmidtown.com and you'll find out a lot more information. And if you have any questions, go on Twitter and contact me at Grant Stern or post with the hashtag nowalmartinmidtown.com. I'm Grant Stern and we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. And I'd like to welcome to the studio, Elos Armandez from the South Florida Business Journal. Hey, Grant. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for finally making it into the studio. Uh, I love it here. 
I think you've been on a couple of times by phone, right? By phone, and uh, you know, always, always listening, always have good, good stuff going on here. So, so Elazar, tell our audience a little bit about yourself, like when you came to South Florida and what you've been doing since you got here in journalism. Um, I got here just under two years ago. I got here on Halloween in 2013. And I actually wanted to come here as a way to make it to Latin America, um, get a job, and I actually applied for a position in Bloomberg News in Mexico and had some other offers. And then I guess I realized I was in Latin America. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need to go anywhere else. Um, That's a great point. I was going to say that, but... <laughs> yeah. So I, I got a great offer from the Daily Business Review to be their real estate reporter, and being here and with the real estate boom going on and everything that's happening, there's just some great stories and great and great developments going on. I kind of turned that into more of a political beat because, uh, as you know, uh, deeply, yeah. <laughs> uh, politics is it, it's extremely intertwined with uh, real estate development in everywhere. But in Miami, just in such a opaque and, and, and clearly discernible way. So well, I'll tell you something funny. Um, in, in doing all that stuff sure. with the No Walmart and Midtown campaign, um, I did a lot of reading, and I read this one lawyer from, like, Kansas or something, and it, his website said that at their essence, all zoning hearings and decisions are political. <laughs> yeah, of course. I yeah. mean, you're, you're, yeah, even you're making legal a decision proceedings. about the future yeah. of a community, so it's going to be priorities and who shows up and who squeaky wheel gets the grease and who's paying off food so that's that's part of it but man it's just so much fun here because one it's not it's not there's not a huge market already reporting it the way that it was in new york where, where i was coming from well there used to be well it i wasn't here for out that. i wasn't here for that but you know it, 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 there isn't a huge market number one and secondly the stories like it, it's like almost as if you dig deep enough you're gonna you're gonna hit hookers and cocaine at some <laughs> point that's like the five degrees of separation from hookers and cocaine is the story of miami so it was great and i loved it there and 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 the daily business review was a, a great place um then i got a better offer recently to go cover tech for the south for the business journal and uh i really want to do a lot more than just tech reporting in the way that uh you might think of like write about gadgets or write about companies unveiling thing i want to get the crazy stories that are in that community because right now we do have a very uh, de a developing and very exciting startup community happening in miami where there wasn't one even three or four years ago there was nothing it, and it was embryonic it was embryonic the, the mean, tools were there but not the the companies and there's been there's been false there's been starts uh not false starts real starts elsewhere uh you know the, there's a tech hub for biotech and medical tech in boca raton and and so forth. Um, South well, Miami has, has gaming I, I, companies, but you know now it's like really happening. It's I've really got a happening. question for you because this is this is one of my favorite authors. Before I got into real estate myself, right? I was very very into tech. Have you ever read uh, Robert X Kringley? I have not, so I got to pick it up. Uh oh. Okay, this is for everybody listening. Robert is, X Kringley. He he is a tech writer, and he was in Silicon Valley. When Apple and Microsoft and all of that was happening, he attended the the meetings of the Homebrew Club, the, the Homebrew Computer Club. Mm. Sure. And he wrote a fantastic book that is completely worth reading if you're getting into the space because it's been a seminal guide for me in mm. business. It's called Accidental Empires. Interesting. Accidental Empires. Think about that. My my favorite tech writer is Steve Levy, and I actually had the opportunity to work with him at Newsweek 
uh, he is with Wired now. He's a he's a great awesome. dude, and he's he gets in everywhere. So no one says no to Steve. Hey, that's how it is sometimes. Yeah, but yeah, it's uh it's a great space to be in because right. there's innovation, there's new ideas every day. So and the, and the thing about it is like my sources don't know this yet, and if they're watching or listening, cover your ears right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I have a pretty pretty developed BS meter. Uh, which was why I did so well in real estate and real estate reporting because essentially it was going off to to eleven. It was set to eleven every day. Um, <laughs> but but now going into tech, you know, there's a lot of hype, and there has to be hype, right? I mean, the, any optimist community is going to have a lot of hype, and some of the stuff that's happening and the ideas are great and wonderful, and they deserve the hype. Some of them, uh, you know, we have the old school Miami like snake oil salesman and you know exposing that is going to be part of what I'm doing too so. I, that's true in any community yeah um there's this like community um rule that that's very popular in social media it's mm-hmm. called the the 99 and 1 rule you ever hear of that and 99 and 1 it's it's the 99 and 1 rule in a community uh 1% will be authors Nine, 9% will be commenters, and 90% will be readers. Hmm. I had not heard about it, but that makes a lot of sense, yeah. But, you know, when it comes to communities, there's also Where's that... the trolls in that in The, in the, the 9%, And the yes. 9% are trolls, okay. Yeah. Well, just commenters, commenters. <laughs> they're, they're people that feel like they can speak up. Mm, and um, And that's a community management, like, dictum. Right, right. But it's kind of applicable in tech because it is, it's a tech community. That's right. how they see it. You know, they're part of this community. And it actually is. So far, I mean, I, there is there is kind of a kumbaya feel for these companies. And and there has to be because the whole point of startups is in the name. You're starting. So you're not going to be able, if, if you have like a very hard, you know, they're trying to steal your idea and take your money and, and rip you off kind of environment, people are not going to start businesses. They're going to... Well, gonna... I got to tell you, there is a lot of that in tech startups. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean... Do you know what uh, where uh, Bill Gates got right. uh, DOS from? Yeah, he got it from a guy that he paid like a hundred bucks for it, and he and paid fifty thousand bucks. All right, so there you go. But it used to be called QDOS. This is all in the book, by the way. Accidental Empires. I'm not selling the book, but it's a fantastic book. Sure. Um, uh, and and basically, it was called QDOS: Quick and Dirty Operating System. <laughs> <laughs> he, he saw that, but I mean, being an entrepreneur is seeing the opportunity too. So I, I get that. But, but well, you, you see, know. that's the thing though. The difference between a great software developer is the guy, the, that guy who developed the software, he got the fifty thousand dollars. But a great business person, who was a BSer, right? Well, that's he what may, he's the world's richest man. You know, you know, this is something, and I, and I don't think that, for example, CEO salaries in in America are justified at the moment. Um, I don't think anyone with a brain thinks, really, except the CEOs themselves, of course, and the sure. ch- and the boards that seem to, and 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 the compensation consultants that seem to. But isn't there always salaries. a difference between CEOs and founders? There is, There's, there is, but, but somebody can be both, but not everybody can be both. But part of it is 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 what I, what is going at is that being a CEO is you're not necessarily a creative nerd. You're kind of like mooching off the creative nerve energies, but actually making things happen. Sure. So like uh, Tesla was a nerd, right? Uh, uh, Elon you know, Musk, he's the CEO of Tesla. No, I'm, I'm talking Tesla, the historical figure. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah he yeah. was definitely a nerd. Tesla was definitely a nerd. You know, he created all these things. He's, uh, he's the electric Jesus. He had wireless electricity like planned out. 
before that was like a hundred years before his time, the telegraph, the internet, all these things like essentially he, he mapped out, right? Uh, he never executed it though, and he ended up working for Edison, Thomas Thomas Alba Edison, who was like a great businessman and also and an inventor. Yes, a yes. total D. Something that you could not say. Yeah, I cannot on say on the reader because they're going to get F- F- FCC sanction, right? And yes. and and he was just taking advantage of the guy, but making money hand over fist because that's what a CEO is. It's a guy that that that, that sees the opportunity and and and, and functions that. So. It's interesting. You do have a founder's environment that's not necessarily like that. It, it will change as it develops, but it's a lot of fun right now. Well, I'll, before we go to a quick break, I want to share something from Accidental Empires because yeah. it's really one of those books it. that I've I, – I, one of my favorite business books of all time and history because it is – it's it's modern history. Um, and, and that is uh, Kringley said that there was three waves of business. The first wave, the founders, they're like the commandos. The second wave, they're like the shock troops. Once the beachhead has been, re, uh, you know, taken, they come in and they just spread across the scene. Those are the sales, the marketing guys, the support guys, mm-hmm. and then the last stage he called the military police. Now you've got a garrison, everything, and I just thought that was a great analogy for the three waves of the the three stages of a business going from startup commandos to shock troops when it's a mature or an enterprise to like IBM, right. You're everywhere. You're just trying to keep what you've got. Right. That makes sense. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show.
Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. That's www.onlyinmiami.co. And we're live with Elazar Melendez from South Florida Business Journals. Thanks for joining us on the program tonight, Elazar. Happy to be here. So we we left off talking about entrepreneurial culture. Right. Um, what have you seen so far in, in the tech scene in Miami that attracted you to working that beat in well, particular? It's interesting because it really is developing as a Miami vibe kind of culture. Uh, and it, it makes How so? What what, well, what defines that from say Silicon ser- Valley or New York or something? It's kind of stereotypical, like but it's like the way that the demographics work here, it's like if you go to uh, a party like I, I went to last week for the opening of a new space um uh, building.co in Brickle, where they had a lot of the people that are involved in tech and startups and a lot of the advisors that are funding companies and VCs, it looked like an episode of uh, Workaholics. It, it looked like a stereotypical <laughs> VC, Southern California, you know, like everyone was kind of, some people were, were had that look, but but it was a lot, people were a lot tanner and a lot prettier. <laughs> so it was, okay. it, it was, it was that. And then like, you know, the, the, the interest that people have, Fashion um, tech is a is a really much bigger proportionally to what the rest. It's not huge, but it's proportionally to what the rest of the industry here it is 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 a lot. Um, and I think that comes from kind of the the mentality of of people here, as well as apps that that have to do with tourism and property management, like the stuff that's already like a big deal. So you in in Florida, and that makes sense because you're not gonna develop something that exists outside of the ecosystem totally. Uh, but the vibe, you know, I mean, like, it, it's the whole culture is developing along the same lines as other entrepreneurial culture with the same hallmarks of maybe mañana, mañana, and let's take a little, <laughs> let's take a little colada break and figure this out. This, and, is, this is getting a little worrisome with a lot of mañana. <laughs> take, take, take it easy, man, you know, so it's like, you know, it's, it, it's very Miami. No, uh, listen, I, I totally understand. I've had offices at the lab for yeah. a couple of years. Um, and I've witnessed oh, so a lot know. of startups. Uh, absolutely, I've been to the pitch night at Winwood. Have you been to pitch night yet at Winwood? I've been to not the not the one that Lab does, but I mean they're having like a hackathon or a pitch night every other day in Miami. It's it's actually really growing that fast. That is crazy because yeah. I mean the only and not, one and not I just in Miami. That, I want to point out like for Lauderdale, Boca, all these places have uh, have a lot of activity going on. So that's true. Um, but yeah, you, so you have to make it out of Wincode pitch night. I right. think that's the the mother of all Miami pitch nights. Still, mm-hmm. it was it's definitely the progenitor of it so far. And they just started a new class, I believe, today. Their seventh um, cohort or whatever it is of, of new coders. So ah, uh, yes, the cohort. The cohort. <laughs> Look, those people are, are pretty are pretty in, in for a pretty good deal. I'm, and I'm not being uh, you know, Wincode is not a sponsor or an advertiser, but uh, but I'll say something that you know nice sure. about them, like. If you go into WinCode and you do what there's six, it's a six week program, and you are pretty, you're pretty good, and they recommend you, you'll probably come out with like a fifty or sixty thousand dollar job, which like first at, of, least, at least that much, at if least that you, much. If you graduate, if you and graduate, and they can see that you're good, and that then they recommend you, and that's that's you know the medium income, the median salary in Miami for a household. Is thirty two thousand dollars or thirty between household? Thir- no, not household. Maybe individual. Household, bro. 
So you're you're getting well, in the city of Miami. In the city of Miami. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. I thought you were talking about Miami. No, Dade no, County. I'm not including Pinecrest, man. Come on. But, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's there. It's, it's it's something around the. It's in the 30s for a household. So you're getting twice. You know what what what, what you're making. And you know a lot of people in their early 20s, especially because we're coming into an era, the post 2008 era, where the American dream. People don't really know where that's at. So people are kind of aimless. So it's a good a good way to you know kind of straighten yourself out. Hey, listen, it's it's a great way to be trained for what people actually need right. in business. People need apps. <clears throat> they need developers. They need to be able to take their products mm-hmm. and bring them to the online marketplace. That's about it. And and, and it, it creates, you know, it, it's funny because it's almost like a lot of people go to four years of college. And obviously, they probably wouldn't be able to do the program properly without the four years of college. But people go through... A whole college experience, and sometimes they can't get a job, and then they go to the six-week boot camp, and and they get an awesome job. That's that's crazy. Well, I don't think it's crazy. I think it's a symptom a symptom of the breakdown of a system yeah, that was built. It, it was built slowly over time, the way that people went to liberal arts colleges, mm-hmm. and and it was built, and then it, it it changed. You know, when people started coming back from the GI Bill after right. World War II, and it became this thing where, you know, if you just went to this, you would be guaranteed a an office job, some right. sort of like steady job. But then over time, those jobs kind of disappeared. Right. So now you have all these people who are trying to get a, a, a degree that but would that be was really useful American- in 1970 when their parents right. were going to school. Which today it's kind of like oh well, you, everybody has one of these. Things. But I mean that that may, should make you question you know basically and I don't want to get all dramatic or, or or but it's it's the American dream right you go to school you work hard you don't get in trouble you don't get pregnant against seventeen and 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 you'll have a, a good job and you'll be able to support yourself and if that's gone for this generation I mean then the shoe hasn't dropped then like the reaction to that hasn't happened yet and it's been muted and something will happen well the, i think the reaction is mu- uh, happening i think occupy wall street is part of the reaction but it's going to take more time for the political effect of the reaction to happen because what happens is people get older i'm counting on the table to see how long it takes for you to bring up bernie sanders <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'm actually I, i'm i know some of the people that are organizing for him in miami and they're very very excited about that whoa uh-oh yeah. periscope fell now you know i i wasn't leading towards bernie but um or trump for that matter i mean it's a reaction to the system it is a reaction to the current state of the system but i mean with bernie sanders in particular do you think that people would really follow a jewish socialist it's a hard sell and the hair's not helping him what about the Catholic Church? <laughs> uh, They're into him, right? Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's rough. That's true. Oh, I just got it. Sorry, it took me <laughs> it took a second. A while. <laughs> 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 All right. Anyway, so so I don't know. But, but I mean, I, I, going back to tech and going back to where we started, I do feel, and I actually wanted, so I went to an event um, called uh, Startup Week in Miami. Tell me about Not that. Not this weekend, but last weekend. Um, it was a lot of fun. It was based on wearable technology. So a lot of the people, every pitch had to be related to fashion or wearable technology in some way. And essentially, everyone made a pitch uh, of like about 30 or 40 people that showed up made a pitch. And they picked the room voted for the eight, six ideas that they liked the best. 
And then it kept getting winnowed down. Some people like joined the team and then they never showed up again. Some people like were there through the night and whatnot. And they launched the idea is they launched a company. They really launched a concept over the weekend. Um, and some of those people that were working on the ideas, some of the people on the losing teams got job offers from people that are VCs that came to be judges who were like, you know what, your idea was terrible. Whatever, you but know, like, but you're I smart. Like your spirit. You can go with and, stuff. And, and, yeah. and you're awesome. So, you know, that was that, that, was, a, that was that. And, um, and, you know, I spoke to one of the organizers who was very idealistic, you know, and he said uh, during the first uh the first day like this is the new american dream is going to be entrepreneurship now that well, that was the old american dream mm, the american not dream sure was not was... always uh, you know graduate from school go to the next school then get the government job get the teaching yeah. job get the the mailman job and be in that for 30 years and then you're done right that it it, it became the american dream for so you're talking a, a about generation like, or two. go west young man and that kind of thing before the turn of what's the century what's go west young man and, all about right it's, like it, you get out from homestead and then you like it wasn't to go park. west young man and attend a good college <laughs> right. and then get a degree and find a fine wage sir I don't think that was the rest of Go West Young it Man. Was pack your mule and get get the heck out of here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, people do not have enough mules in this country today. Right. Except maybe in maybe maybe in, in, maybe in the Havana port of Miami or, you know, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> Miami International Airport. Though. Maybe in Little Haiti yeah. in certain areas yeah. they have the appropriate level of mules, but yeah. <laughs> but no, seriously. Uh Go West is it's not it's not a call to education it's called right. work and practical work like you brought up thomas edison earlier right he was not a school taught individual right right you he know? just he just had school hard knocks basically so i mean yeah and that's 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 interesting and if that's where we're going then i guess it's better than not having a dream obviously society will have to adopt to that but it's exciting and and i think people are very idealistic which is kind of hard to fathom why people would be idealistic in this stage of you know, American history, because most people think that their children are going to have a worse off life than they ha than they do from this generation, from people that are like, you know, 30, 30, 30 let's say 18 to 34. Right. The the prime TV demographic. Most of those people think that their kids are going to are going to inherit a country that's worse off. And yet people are optimistic like, well, but we'll do something about it. And, and we're not going to like just pop like mope and. And, and and be sad, you know. We're gonna like then solve the problem. So, well, you know what? You you did it again. You uh, you brought up a point that makes me now refer to another one of my favorite books. Got it. <laughs> you're good at this. Am I getting hearts? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, you're getting a few hearts. Come uh, on, hearts here on, on, on Periscope, hearts, please. I need some hearts. So, <laughs> there's this book called uh, Mindset. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of this book? No. We we gotta share libraries. Oh, yeah, we definitely got to share libraries. So Mindset is just a book about mindset itself. And it's something you talk about the American dream, right? Mm -hmm. And we're talking about there's there's a couple definitions of this. It could be just going to school and then, you know, going into the workforce with something that you went to school for and then doing that and then retiring and then it's done. That's your American dream. Right. Um, but the go west mindset, it requires trial and error. Or like the Thomas Edison, the inventor's mindset, it, it requires trial and error. And the book is actually called Mindset, the New Su Psychology of Success. And it's very interesting. It's written by Carol S. Dweck. 
Um, she's a PhD. I believe she's a, uh, she's a Stanford University psychologist. Mm. And the two, there, there's, there's just like two things that she talks about in this book. The fixed mindset and the growth mindset. The fixed mindset is very fragile. Okay. It's very fragile. It's not geared towards learning. It's risk aversion. It's wearing these credentials and saying, these credentials give me the power that I have. Not to say that I should take risks because then if you fail, now what are you? This is my credential. I'm a failure. Right. So it makes people more risk averse. And it's very, very widely disseminated, this fixed mindset. The growth mindset is anything that does not kill me makes me stronger or Kanye West. Right. <laughs> That's <laughs> in a nutshell. Right. He would call it the Kanye mindset pretty much. He would call it the yeah. Kanye mindset. Um, but he just ripped it off from this PhD because, you know, Jobs said good artists borrow, great artists steal. Right, right. right. So but true. it's but it's true. And what do you think about that? That there's something like that that's I mean, I important. do think that, that 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 makes sense. And I think that that is, you know, going back to where we are as a country. I mean, that hasn't gone away. And that's a great thing about America that you can fail, pick yourself up and and, and say, I'm back and people will give you a chance. Even like, you know, you can be bankrupt a bunch of times and pretend and then like you can run for president and, and, and pretend like, like you know everything. Happen. Right. So <laughs> that, not a lot of countries in the world have that opportunity. You know, the, the, the commercial capital and social <laughs> systems can't support that. Um, well, I mean, let's talk about that briefly because yeah. we've got a few minutes before we take our next break. Uh, did you hear about the Twitter campaign? Hashtag Ask Trump. No. When did that happen? Like today? It happened this afternoon. Okay. And I was a little busy, but yeah. And if you don't have popcorn ready, pull it out <laughs> and go on Twitter. If you're out there in What's the audience. What's your favorite? Come on. You, okay. You, you got to tease this. Um, I'll pull up some of my favorites and I'll uh, I'll start with the one that I wrote. Um, here's one. What's your kind of uh, your favorite kind of discrimination? Ask Trump. <laughs> um then there's another one. It's got a picture of uh, basically like a half a dozen different uh, mass shooters, like uh, you know the Columbine shooters mm -hmm. and and the the movie theater shooter and and the the guy that went into the South Carolina church. And it just says, "Do these mass shooters look Mexican to you?" Ask Trump. <laughs> um, so I I had to ask something myself. Right. And uh, I asked. Is a very humane mass is a very humane mass deportation of immigrants going to be more like the Trail of Tears or the Holocaust? Is that that all fit in 140 characters? That fits in 140 characters. Uh, I get a lot into 140 characters. Yeah, that's intense. Yeah, that's intense, man. But but think about it. I don't it. know. Didn't you invoke Godwin's law there though? Godwin's law. Yeah, yeah. You, you 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 took out a uh, you Hitler. You know, you took out Hitler in in, in the argument. Yeah, but uh, that they were mass deportations. That's true. That's uh, that's the scary thing. I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C. over the summer. Right. And something that really struck me that had never struck me before was the element of the mass deportation. It wasn't just that they sent these people off to these camps. But it was that they rounded them all off and deported them very far, far away. 
And similar things happened in the United States during World right, War II. Right. There was over 100,000 Asians who were interred against their will in camps in the western part of the United States. So There's some similarities. Obviously, it wasn't at the same level or, or to uh, the effect. To them, I'm sure the, the difference is lost. But the Trail well, of Tears, is it was a mass deportation. Yeah, sure. That's probably a more, a, a similar, more similar example. I would agree. Yeah, and, yeah, but but the the Holocaust was a ma- I, I I hadn't realized it until I went to the museum because they talk about it so much. You know, that's they put them in the train cars, they sent them a thousand miles away from home where nobody else could speak the language. You know, it's yeah. it's pretty serious stuff yeah, when you're talking serious. about a mass deportation of not this is not a deportation of a thousand people. This is eleven million people in our country. Right. Well, it's never gonna happen. I mean, if 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 nah, they, it, if, it should if they, not if, happen. If they, if they elect the guy to be the the standard bearer for the Republican Party, it's gonna then then we'll really have President Bernie Sanders, and that'll be that'll <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll be in, it's interesting times. Um, you know, we'll see. This is gonna be a fun times ahead. No one could have guessed that this election was gonna be this way. Well, we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. That's www.onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live with Elazar Melendez from the South Florida Business Journals. Thanks for joining us in the studio tonight again. Thanks for having me, Grant. So what's next for the beat? What are you covering this week? What's interesting? Well, I want to see some of the stuff that is coming back from San Francisco. So right now there's a huge conference in San Francisco called Tech Crunch Disrupt. 
it's essentially the be all end all for early stage startups. They can go there and pitch and make friends, you know, like meet other people that are in their field, get investors, get interest. There's a few South Florida companies that are there um, at, at different levels. Some of them very early startups and some of them sponsors. For example, there's a Fort Lauderdale company that's in charge of the dot club uh, web addresses. They're marketing the heck out of that and they're there and they sponsored a big hackathon and I'm, I'm interested in seeing what they what they say when they come back because getting those insights into into that is, is interesting and it's happening enough now where there are people that are getting developed in startups in Miami and then moving to Silicon Valley uh, with enough experience and with some backers and now there's people that are like pulling here like it, it's, 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 it's in other words they're <clears throat> so they're there's a transit they're going back there. They're going there. Are they coming back afterwards, or just staying out there? Uh, no one that I know has come back yet. But there's like people that are they they they, they wait for it. Yeah, wait for <laughs> it. And they mentor the people that are here, and they create networks. You know, and if they had to do something that was Latin America focused, they very well might come back. So that's that's basically the next step. So well, I mean, I can tell you, forget tech. I've had a lot of friends that have moved from Miami to San Francisco. Right. And almost all of them invariably come back here after some amount of time. Right. For some reason. Not other places. But there, it's just it's it's expensive. It's very expensive. Yeah. Very expensive. Um and I mean, just not the that's vibe. A good part just, of it. just just not the vibe, you know? Like it's it's First of all, things close at like ten PM. <laughs> you can <laughs> you can true. you you can go to like a hipster warehouse party in the ghetto parts of Oakland after after a certain amount of time. But, you know, but you, you can't... Here, the party starts at 3. People are coming out of space at 8 a.m. being like, yo, where are we going next, you know? So the, the change in life is, is drastic and just not... I mean, there's a lot of cool things. It's beautiful over there like it is here, you know? People are really healthy uh, and outdoorsy and they go hiking. <laughs> but... uh which you can't do because everything's flat out here. So, yeah. Well, yeah. that's another you know plus or minus depending yeah, on depend, how you see depending it. how you see the the, the hiking activity. Um, you know, but it's interesting and and beyond that, I really want to focus too on highlighting the transit, not just from San Francisco, Miami, but like international business. Obviously, has always been a cornerstone of what we're happening happening here in the Miami economy, and. There's so much going on where in the past, or, or at least like some of the very early start of, for example, there's a cluster of gaming companies in South Miami where they all specialize in making mobile app games for Latin America, where you know they, they, they okay. it's 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 more it's used a niche. to the, the it's, a niche. it's a niche, right? Now, so but it's a niche that's exporting the product and exporting the entrepreneurship. Now we have a lot more people coming here from Latin America that have successful tech companies there and are saying, well, but but we should like set up in Miami. And then for that, Miami's that's becoming cool. like a cluster the same way. That, for example, if you're a successful entrepreneur, tech 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 entrepreneur, or just progressive entrepreneur in Moscow. You're not in Moscow. You're in London, and it's becoming the same way. Where like the high-level tech people that have like these startups in Bogota and Santiago and and uh, Brasilia are, are are like, well, our headquarters in Miami. Even though we're not an American company, because well, hey, Miami. think of it this way: um, there's there's a group we wanted to have on the program 
Uh, they're called Sonora Coroseles, and they're they're a salsa group, mm-hmm. and they're from Colombia. And they moved here because even though they're a salsa group and they they're exclusively in Spanish, and their market is all of Latin America, to serve all of Latin America, it was better that they all just be based in Miami. <laughs> That makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense, but yeah. but it didn't make sense before, maybe for di- you know certain reasons. Right, right. I mean, you didn't have the infrastructure to support it, and and now now you know it's, it's a, you know it's it's good. It's a marketing infrastructure that's going to be there, so that's going to happen. So well, I uh, think this is a, a this is an indirect result of bringing the nap to South Florida these many years ago. It was about 10, 12 years ago. Do you remember that? I wasn't here for that. The nap definitely is something that people are looking at. The thing about the nap is that it's it's a great thing to have there, and by all rights, it should have kickstarted a tech scene ten years ago, for various reasons, including the recession of two thousand one, and then a focus on other parts of the economy, including well, in two thousand one, they were still installing the nap. I mean, it was there, but it wasn't finished. I, I right, spent but, time but, but inside it put, of but it, but it pushed back yeah. the the deployment for it. That's right? true. Yeah, so, it, it slowed it down. So then. it slowed it down, uh, and it made it less likely that the other deals that they had worked out around and, it would, would materialize. And if you recall, the first attempt at doing this was actually the Omni Mall. The I Omni did not Mall, know that. No, they they completely I'm ripped the guts here. of the Omni Mall straight out, yeah. and they wanted to make it into a tech incubator. Right? Can you imagine that? That would have been pretty cool, but that would have been a little bit ahead of its time. Well, likely. I called up because I was like, "Well, how much?" How much does a startup have to come up with to go into yeah. the Omni Mall? You know what they said? Only ten thousand dollars a month Forget minimum. It. No, oh I'm sorry, God. ten thousand square foot minimum for your startup. Oh no! It's Think about uh, how many, how much space would you say the typical startup has? How how much office space would you say they have when they're starting up and when they've actually launched and got a little bit of capital? When it's like one guy, they have a desk somewhere, and, and you know that's like a hundred and. Fifty to four hundred dollars a month, depending on where they are. I mean, name a few of these for people in our audience who are interested in getting into the Miami tech scene. Right. What what desks should they look for? What what facilities are, are out there? There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them, and they keep growing. So right now, obviously, the lab is like the mothership for a lot of these, uh, and, and a model for the lab in in Wynwood on Twenty Third Street is a model. Twenty Sixth Street is a model of uh, of uh, how people want to do it. Building.co, which I just um, went to as i mentioned is the newest one and they have a very it's a little bit more upscale and it's in brickle and they want a little bit more mature startups right it's not like the one guy that is working with an idea because he has forty thousand dollars from his mom and his dad right it's it's a little bit more like all right we already have four or five employees and, and, we're, and we're doing this or we're coming from latin america and we're doing this um venture hive uh is an incubator but there's there's kind of some space there as well for Startups that can that can come in, um, pipeline and brickle is very popular, and they have a very good culture that that people who 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 are there really like, um, and and the list goes on. And the thing is that it's expanding into interesting niches. So right now you have made at the Citadel, which is a very very interesting shared space over in Little Haiti, uh, where they took up a former. I guess it used to be a mega church at one point, and then it was a cultural center and whatnot. So it was a civic space, that's huge space. And right, they, that's on the corner of Northeast Fifty Ninth Terrace and Northeast Second Avenue. Bingo. And, and to give our audience some background on that, that's actually an Architectural Digest building. It's a very nice building. Yeah, it's one of the most celebrated buildings in all of Miami, believe it or not. Really? I, um, yeah. But it was finished in early 1992. 
And then Hurricane Andrew hit, and it was shut down and had some damage. A new building code was enacted, and then they couldn't reopen it for 20 years, and they finally gotten it back open. Right. That's yeah. That's I was just a, there the other yeah, night. Yeah, it's, it's a great story. So basically, though, they have a niche though for for what they term makers, which are like people that need an office space. But what they really need is somewhere to put their sewing machines or their uh, CNC printer or some other you know their 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 dye tools, some other stuff that they need as part of their creative venture. And that's a that's a very interesting niche that they're serving. Um, and then we have uh, a new one that I reported on that actually hasn't opened yet. They are targeting an October, uh, late October opening. More likely than not, they're probably going to have to push that back, but they, they say it's going to be October, where they're targeting um, really progressive companies that have really progressive business or organizational concepts that are talking about design thinking or exponential organizations, things that are like techie buzzwords, and they're trying to get that kind of company there because they say, look, we're at, we want companies that are going to be at the bleeding edge, and we want to put them all together in an environment. So... That's like a, a also a niche. I mean, it's not hard if you want to share space in Miami to, to get a space. Uh, what's going to be interesting is see how they all survive and how they all contribute to each other So as it goes forward. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the point of being in a shared space, which is that there's more resources than you may have. Right. And you may get input from different people One um, thing socially. One, one thing that I think still hasn't been explored, I mean, there's some attorneys that have been good at this. But for the most part, I think there's still a lot of room for uh, accountants, mortgage brokers like yourself, uh, people that are service providers, to go into these spaces and basically set up an office in a place where it's all tech people that they don't have, you know, a patent specialist. And they need it. And they sure. don't even know that they need that they need the guy. So that's some very clever lawyers have already started doing that, but not every place has one. So that's that's, I think, a big opportunity. But but that's a great opportunity for any entrepreneur. For any entrepreneur, sure. Yeah, yeah. I actually just met a gentleman who's a member of the patent bar myself yesterday. There you go. And, you know, people forget there are a lot of educated people in Miami. They're just spread out. Right, right. Over all these square miles of bad traffic. <laughs> They're hiding. <laughs> They're hiding. So, um, so are there any stories that you're thinking about for tomorrow? Because we've got like two minutes left. So, what's what's the news? Tell us today, tomorrow's news today. Right. Uh, I'm going to be writing on a, a 38 million dollar capital raise for a for a company in Boca Raton, which is the biggest one of the cycle, and it really puts you know like I think a PricewaterhouseCoopers did a report where in the first quarter Miami got like just over 100 million in VC investment, then it went to like. 180 something so just a 38 million dollar deal is, is huge news uh, that is huge news and so that, then, that's like uh, as much as like a quarter of the market yeah pretty much yeah and then you know i'll be writing on on what they tell me was happening at TechCrunch. so that, that's it all righty well tell our audience lsr where they can find you on twitter and online and i know you've got some blogs of your own and right right now i'm pimping my current uh new job so you can find me at at sfbj ventures that's at sfbj ventures uh and that's going to be all uh, software to tech entrepreneurship all the time all righty and where can they find you on twitter uh on twitter uh for my personal account it's at eliazar e-l-e-a-z-a-r melendez m-e-l-e-n-d-e-z okay and your your biz journal twitter uh so the biz journal is sfbj ventures so definitely check that that out Check that out at SFBJ Ventures. Thanks for joining us on the program. Dude, today, it was Elizar. awesome. And we'll be right back. 
This is the Only in Miami show. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. That's www.onlyinmiami.co. And we're live on the phone with Saul Simbler. Saul? Good uh, good evening, Grant. How are you? Good evening. Thanks for joining us from D.C. tonight. It's always a pleasure. So... For, for those in our audience who haven't heard of Saul, Saul Simbler uh, runs a website called DoingBusinessLegallyInCuba.com. And it's actually legally oh, doing business in Cuba.com. Legally doing business in Cuba.com. I'll have to tweet that out. Legally doing business in Cuba.com. And uh, he's here to tell us about the papal visit because the, the, the Pope visited both Cuba and now he's coming up to the United States. And... Um, it's kind of a big deal, but it hasn't been reported as much as it would have been, say, the last time the Pope visited in 1998. So, so tell us a little bit about what's going on with this visit. Well, the Pope's visit to the United States and uh, before Cuba is kind of bookends on uh, diplomacy as well as a religious uh, visit. Clearly, the uh, Pope went down there, as prior Popes have done, to support the Cuban people. Um, in doing that, the Pope took the opportunity to basically give uh, the folks in Cuba, as well as the government in Cuba, his position on what he thinks the world expects of Cuba. And that's what he's done. Now, as a precursor to that, he was, of course, involved in the giant effort to get the United States and Cuba to talk and to lighten up to the point where now some of the restrictions and some of the attitudes that each country had against each other are at least chipping away little by little. Well, that's what um, I was getting at. He was the facilitator for the historic warming of relations that happened in December when President Obama announced that the United States and Cuba would seek normal relations. Has he revealed a little bit more about his role as an intermediary? He really hasn't. Um, at that level, remember, he's not only a pope, he's a diplomat, um, and he has to be diplomatic about it in, in, in the most generic sense of the word. The pope um, cannot force anybody to do or not do anything. His status and this particular pope's status worldwide is not only a leader but a populist opens up the opportunity to let folks um, use his efforts as kind of a treadmill to jump on to do things. In this case, the United States and Cuba um, were able to use that kind of as a gadget, so to speak, um, to get back to the table and to do that in a meaningful way and in a respectful way. And because of that, you've seen um, kind of at warp speed uh, changes being done. Um, I'm here in Washington more than anything because tomorrow uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is the Department of Treasury uh, agency which administers embargo and sanction country commerce is having their annual conference and in anticipation of that and i believe directly because the pope wasn't cuban coming to the united states president obama uh, negotiated some um, uh, not negotiated he implemented um, further changes uh, to doing business in cuba 
and OPEC and the Department of Commerce have issued new regulations. Now, we've seen snippets of it in the news. I've got the actual, uh, you know, uh, Federal Register, uh, which, you know, anybody can get. And, and they're quite detailed, and the changes in some instances are, are rather profound. So, okay, you're talking about OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Control. They're, they're pretty much in charge of enforcing embargoes uh, when they do exist, trade embargoes. Well, it's not so much that they enforce it, and it's also the Department of Commerce. To some extent. They regulate commerce with countries that are sanctioned, okay, like Sudan and Iran, or embargoes like Cuba. Cuba, if you'll remember, is no longer... Uh, considered a uh, state sponsor of terrorism, so they've been taken off that list. That being said, because of the Helms-Burton bill, which is virtually an embargo, um, there is not an ability to do business other than through OFAC, uh, at least initially. Now with certain changes, even a lot of that has now gone away. Ultimately, until the embargo goes away, or as in Cuba they call it the blockade, um, then we'll have full restoration of, of commercial of commerce between both countries. But Friday, um, major steps were taken by the Obama administration. And, uh, you know, we can go over those now or some other time. Oh, we'll, we'll go over those right after the break. We're going to take a really short break. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. That's www.onlyinmiami.co. We're back with Saul Simbler. Saul, thanks for joining us tonight. Grant, it's always a pleasure. So, so let's talk about these big changes that are coming on Friday. What will that change from today? until, you know, it's implemented. What's new? Well, it did, actually, they were implemented last Friday. Okay. They were, uh, they were published in the Federal Register. Um, you can Google it. You can get it. But there were some major things there. I mean, it dealt with uh, issues including um, travel by vessel or aircraft other than chartered uh, vessels. Um, talked about um, the, the ability to directly do business in certain instances with Cuban entities. Um, although it, generally there's still a prohibition against doing it with the Cuban uh, government, uh, financial um, transactions and how those are done uh, were, were softened up. Uh, physical presence of Americans who want to do business in Cuba, meaning an office 
or retail warehouse in certain instances, in limited instances, are now permitted. Uh, the um, re- ability to now send money to Cubans and Cuba is now limitless. It's not $2,000 uh, every three months. Now it's, it's all the way. Well, here's uh, a question. Now- here's an interesting question. Um, most people don't know this, but Ecuador dollarized their economy. Uh I want to say 10 years ago, 12 years ago, after they had a major banking crash, they literally just said, we are going to use the American dollar as our currency. With a flood of dollars coming from South Florida, now there's no cap, with the ability to do business, is it possible, do you think that Cuba will dollarize the economy and literally just you know make the dollar the currency of exchange if it isn't really already in many cases um it, it really is not and uh granted you know i go down there sure. and anywhere from a week to two weeks uh, every month um advising you know companies non-profit organizations and individuals uh and, and on things related to Cuba, not only the business the economy the legal system all of the studies I'll be down there next month on a long seminar uh, at the Supreme Court down there. One of the things that is um, really, I think, something that can't get lost in the uh, translation of all this is that the changes that are going on in Cuba are not motivated by anything related to the United States. Cuba will make it or not without the United States. It's just harder with the blockade. Cuba is a very nationalistic country. They're very proud of who they are and of their heritage. That's not going to change. If you look at the new laws that have come into effect in the last three or four years regarding business in Cuba, they specifically say that they are not changing their socialist system, that everything that's being done down there is to advance socialism in a more efficient way that benefits people. They have another issue regarding currency, which is that there's a dual currency in Cuba. There's the peso, which is equivalent to 24, well, 24 pesos is equivalent to a convertible currency they have called the coup, the CUP. And that say, say that again. It was tough to understand. Huh? What's the convertible currency called? It's called a, a coup, a CUP. A CUP, a coup. And, and you hear a coup, CUP, which is the peso. So people who are not involved in, in trade, you know, ordinary Cubans, they deal with the coup. Um, and they get paid in that. And then in order to dollarize something, it has to then be converted into a coupe, and then from a coupe, it then gets converted to a dollar or a euro or whatever. And therein lies a more complicated problem that's enough for its own show, which is the inability of, of access to the foreign currency. And that's something that the Cuba is dealing with. And I've spoken to quite a few economists, especially on my last trip there and one who was here last week, and, and that's that's something down the road, but it's not going to become a dollar economy. It's not going to become an outpost of the United States. We're not going back to my parents' Cuba or my grandfather's Cuba in 1959. They have a social structure. They have laws just like we have here. There's 22,000 attorneys in Cuba. There's economic organizations there that train things. And it's not as if on December 17th, uh, suddenly... You know, Cuba woke up and said, oh, gee, you know, now the Americans are talking to us. What do we do now? Things were put in place years ago, and it has nothing to do with the United States. The United States has to decide, and the people have to decide, is it in the United States' best interest to engage Cuba? Because economically, it's in our best interest. 
and we decide to do it great little by little the united states will participate but ultimately whatever government is um, in power here in the united states decides it's not well it'll be a little tougher for Cuba, but, but they'll get over it and move on they've done it for 55 years they've sent the message they're not going to be coming out close to the united states well let's talk about the the political climate in the united states towards cuba because there's two very distinct and different schools of thought. Um, I would say that your school of thought is well represented by, um, you know, many pragmatists, many people who believe that, uh, you know, there's been enough enmity and it didn't accomplish anything. Um, but presidential candidate and Florida Senator Marco Rubio continues to slam Cuba at every opportunity. Um, and he's one of the younger generation. So, well, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, Grant, I think, you know, we've spoke about it. Um, you know, when I was of his age and, and actually younger, and I'm not unique uh, as in regards to some of the folks who are engaged. Uh, I was involved in the other side of the equation, the things that the Marco Rubio. Remember, we were brought up, and I'm a Cuban-American, to believe that everything that happened in Cuba was wrong and we had to fight it. And I did it. I mean, I was very involved with the Cuban-American National Foundation. I was a volunteer lobbyist, so to speak. I went to convention with the Democratic and Republican National Conventions, and I, and I helped frame some of the policy for some of the right-wing groups and actually effectuated right here in Congress. I, I mean, this is, an issue. this is an issue. This is an issue that— bill was revised. So, listen, this is an issue that my, just three years ago, three years ago, the, the Marlins manager made remarks about Cuba, and he stepped on the third rail, and here we are just three years later. It's not— it's not that thing anymore, is it? Well, the reason that that became what it was is because, remember, he was Venezuelan. So that not only, um, you know, for lack of a better word, pissed off people in, in Miami or Cuban, but also Venezuelans who were going through their, their own problems and their, and their own issues. And it also ultimately came down to you had a team that wasn't doing too well, and here he is talking politics instead of focusing, you know, on running a baseball team. So he was meddling in things he had no idea what he was talking about, and it was believed that he was doing it on behalf of the Chavez government. So that, he, he did as it may. I think your point is, why now um, is there somewhat of a green light? And the reason is because if, if like me, you go, you go down to Cuba often, and I didn't just you know wake up one day and say, gee, you know what, it sounds like uh, it's a good idea, let me see. Like I told you, I've been involved in Cuba issues before. And I went down there on my first trip to see, okay, I've heard things are a certain way, so let me go figure out what they are. So what I found down there is a country trying to change. The embargo is a huge hindrance um, in, in the possibility of how it can change and how the quickness of it can change. But, you know, it's happening. Um, there are only 70 to 100 political prisoners in Cuba. And I really don't want to talk politics, but that's always something that people talk about. Um, you know, you know that the government there does not necessarily uh, act in a way that everybody's happy with. Well, I'm not, we're not happy with our government certainly here. So what we have to focus on is not what Cuba is doing or not doing, I believe. We have to focus is it in the best interest of the United States to engage Cuba. We're not going to go in and change Cuba and make it an American outpost. That's well, that uh, but I but I wouldn't say that Ecuador is an American outpost. 
I would not say that Ecuador is an American outpost, but the dollarization of their economy happened because they wanted to base their currency on the dollar. Yeah, but they didn't have a dual currency. So Cuba has a couple of impediments to take care of, and they will. And, um, you know, hopefully one day you'll have an opportunity to see with economists that I've dealt with. And oh, yeah. These are very, some very, very sophisticated folks. And, you know, they know what's wrong, what went wrong and what needs to get done. And, and that's one of the interesting things. We do speak to people, both in the government and in the think tanks, because they have them, whether it's the University of Havana or industry. You know, they'll tell you exactly what went wrong or what they should have done differently. And they're, they're trying desperately to do that. So now you have a country, the United States, that's somewhere between 90 and 150 miles away, if you want to include Miami as, as the center of that, and also Tampa, that has the ability to move fast forward um, into helping the people of Cuba, not the government of Cuba. And that's what the emphasis needs to be also on what OFAC is doing. For the most part, with, with, with little exceptions, everything that o- uh, President Obama is doing has to do with his motivation to directly help the Cuban people. Big example, he took the remittances from $500 to $2,000. And I got to tell you, in my last four trips there, I saw a difference. There are car washes open, private businesses often opening all over the place. Now that number is absolutely unrestricted. So if you do go down there with dollars, you got you get clipped because there's a penalty from converting the dollars into the food, and then there's a service fee. But that being said, there's now the ability to hand money to people directly, and and they are very entrepreneurial. Cubans are very entrepreneurial now. There is a subset of Cubans, you know, have been traumatized by the uh, embargo and, and by a period in the late 80s and early 90s when the Soviet Union fell. And, and quite frankly, I don't know if those people ever psychologically will, will recover. But for, for young Cubans and for Cubans who are entrepreneurial, the opportunities are starting to open. So what do we do? We make believe that unless things go back to 1959, like respectfully, our esteemed Senator uh, Rubio and people like that insist on, knowing that it's never going to happen? Or do we come up with something that says, you know what, enough's enough, these are Cuban brothers and these are Cuban sisters, um, it's time to uh, approach them directly and see that uh, effectuate change that's consistent with whatever they want to do. Grant, I don't know if you know, but probably 90% of Cubans who live in Cuba were born after 1959. What what their percentage is that? Is their way of life. What what percentage is that? It's over ninety. It's probably ninety five percent at this point. I would imagine and that over ninety percent of Cubans in Miami were were born after at least nineteen fifty. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean that would that would make sixty five. So I mean maybe there's a few more viejos here in Miami than than there. Well, there's eleven million people there, so I have the numbers somewhere. Because I have the workforce numbers, I just don't have them in front of me. So Cuba has, you know, especially since um, uh, Raul Castro became uh, the head of the government, has focused more on, um, you know, dealing with the economy than his brother did as as his predecessor. And he's quite efficient at things in some ways that he does it. Um, But, you know, it's a country that, Folks are not used to managing things, even in government. So, you know, there's, like, there's a huge learning curve. Absolutely, but, there is. And here, too, about what to do 
about what's going on there. Yeah, but you know, and and I look, I don't criticize anybody who takes a position that's strong against Cuba. Everybody has their frame of reference, but you know, for folks to do it blindly, um, just because it's a political agenda or somebody's political agenda, that's where the problem is. They're not doing a service. Uh, to their constituents or, or, or to folks here in, in, in the United States or Cuba. These new regulations that I'm talking about, are some of them are, are, are profound. Um, some of them will require, and, and most of them do, for the Cuban government to approve what the U.S. government is now allowing. But for instance, right now, you know, on Thursday I had gotten a phone call uh, from some folks who wanted to do a fishing tournament in Cuba which would have required every boat to get a license from the Department of Commerce. And before I had a chance to even really look at it, the regs came out, and that's no longer necessary. Without any license, they can go down there as long as, on the Cuban side, they are permitted to do so. And they, that boat can stay there for up to 14 days. Um, I have an application in for one of the ferries, and it seems to me that that's going to include the ferries. But yet, on the Cuban side, that has to be done. Aircraft? You know, can go down there for seven days. Cubans can now open bank accounts in the United States and not have to close them when they leave after a visit. Americans can now go down to Cuba and open up bank accounts. There's a lot of stuff going on. That is a lot of stuff. And how is this um, affecting Key West? Is is Key West going to become the epicenter of the this new detente, or is it really still going to be Miami, even though Key West is so much closer? Well. You know, when you say detente, um, don't rule out Tampa. Um, because of, I don't want to use the word hostility, but the impracticality of having a, um, a Cuban consulate, remember the embassy in Washington, having a Cuban consulate in Miami, I believe that the Cuban consulate will most probably be in Tampa, um, especially since some of the congressmen, um, and especially a particular congresswoman in Tampa, has, um, you know, help with the process. So well, I think people I, I don't think, realize that Tampa has such Miami, a strong... From a political point of view, it's going to become any kind of an epicenter. Um, you know, the mayor of Bay County says that he will protect any, any consular office in Miami, but uh, Mayor Regalado has said otherwise. And, and I just don't think it's necessary for it to be there. To be no, um, but... You know, Key uh, West would be kind of cool if it, was, if it was there. I just don't know if they have the infrastructure. Well, people don't realize that Tampa has a thriving and and long-standing Cuban community. Yeah, and, and it predates that in Miami by at least seventy, eighty years. That's right. I was actually just at the Columbia restaurant not too long ago, which is so. Which is so very now, you know now these new regulations, and it, and it permits uh, Cuba to the extent that it wants to, you know, to modernize um, air traffic, um, you know, by security systems parts and things like that. Um, it permits um, individuals who want to open up in the construction trade, the telecommunication trade, um, to actually have an office in Cuba. They have warehouses and offices. And that's it. And, 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 and in addition to that, whereas before you could only either sell or donate equipment to, to private businesses in Cuba, now it's permitted to take them there temporarily, basically if you want to do a job. Again, this is all directly non-government agencies, with the exception, and we'll get a lot more clarity on it tomorrow at the seminar, um, for certain Cuban entities, okay, that individuals will be able to do joint ventures. But, so, like so, I said, I, I've got to spec the regs, and we'll get a little bit more traction on that tomorrow. 
Well, Saul, thank you very much for calling into the program tonight. Saul Simler, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you can find out more about what Saul is doing at LegallyDoingBusinessInCuba.com. Saul, thanks for coming on the program tonight. And we'll be right back. This is the only in Miami show. One day I'm gonna be king. I'm gonna make that woman so proud of a son. I know you heard about changes gonna come. One question: Will you be there? Will you be there? I'll be there with my hands held high in the air like a champion. Cause I'm the man to win. Thanks for listening tonight. This is the Only in Miami show. And check out www.nowalmartinmidtown.com. That's www.nowalmartinmidtown.com. Find out more about our fundraiser today. www.nowalmartinmidtown.com.
Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, Podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back with Peter Ehrlich on the line. Peter, thanks for joining us tonight. Grant, thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure always. So I wanted to catch up about what's going on in city of Miami politics and county politics, and I'll let you start first. Where are we starting? Well, I've been a little bit concerned about the escalating taxes, taxes and fees in the local, our local cities and also in Miami-Dade County. Okay. So explain to our audience the difference between raising taxes and raising the rate at which people pay taxes, because I think that's an issue of confusion among most people. What's going yeah. on with that? That's a great question. Um, there's that's what you're referring to as the millage rate, right? The millage rate is sort of the numerical number that governments use um, as a multiplier times the assessed values to give them the, the, the property tax income um, that they use to partially fund their their um, their government operations. Right. So it's the tax rate for real property. Yes, it is, but it definitely does not tell the whole the whole picture. Right, because if you raise the millage rate, then you are definitely raising taxes. Um, but that's not the only thing that counts. So what's no, going you, on you here? You could actually reduce the millage rates and see increased taxes or even significantly increased taxes. And why is that? That's because in, in a given period of time, the pro, the, the Miami-Dade County property appraiser, they could be valuing properties significantly more than in the prior the prior period. Gotcha. So higher property values, but the same tax rate is leading to more tax money coming in. Uh, yes, it was a combination of things. But to, to give you know, to, give, to give you some numbers and to put it in perspective, in Miami-Dade County this year, uh, for the upcoming proposed. Uh, budget year, which is defined as uh, 2015 slash 2016. It starts, what, in October? Uh, October 1st. Right, okay. Um, Miami-Dade County taxes and fees are going up approximately $122 million. Okay. And And, and what's the size of the entire budget? Roughly the same. Yes, and interestingly, their entire budget, which they define as their total budget, which also includes capital expenditures, is going up from... $6.2 $6.2 billion last year, which is 2014-2015, to this year's proposed budget, 2015-2016, of $6.8 billion. So we're spending $600 million more locally, exactly. but we're only collecting $122 million more in taxes. discussing this as much as they should. Well, I think people in general don't realize that the municipal corporation that is Miami-Dade County is spending, they're distributing over $6 billion a year. I mean, there's a lot of states that probably don't have a $6 billion a year budget. Yes, I'm, I'm sure a couple of smaller ones would have, would have trouble reaching $6.8 billion. Uh, I think quite a few smaller ones, even some pretty large ones, actually. Now, you know, to be fair, some of the $6.8 billion gets collected by Miami-Dade County and distributed to 
to um, the, the school board and also local municipal governments. There's about 34 cities within Miami-Dade County, and some of the tax money gets distributed to the cities within Miami-Dade County. But nonetheless, what we're talking about is a tax increase, a tax increase to taxpayers and, and residents and tourists that are that come to come to Miami-Dade County. Now, the city of Miami, they're looking at a tax increase of $20 million, going from $280 million in their operating budget last year to $300 million in their proposed budget for next year. And the city of Miami budget is going up $55 million from approximately $560 million to approximately $615 million. And to put that in perspective... $615 million that's divvied up and spent by the city of Miami government, and there's how many residents? About 500,000? 525,000. Oh, but, but that number sounds a little bit low. When When is that number from? Well, there's a lot of people that come into the city of Miami to work during the day. But that's I, I true, too. The, the last census, that's close to what the real actual census budget uh, number of residents is. I wonder what the revised number is because there's been a lot of movement towards downtown and a lot more density in downtown uh, since then. And by the way, I'm looking at it. I found it on Wikipedia. Um, there are, in fact, one, two, three, four, five states with smaller budgets than Miami-Dade County. They are Vermont, Delaware, New Hampshire, Mississippi, and South Dakota. Well, good for you for pulling that up so quickly. <laughs> well, you know, got to do something but, with the computer. But the reason, the reason I think more people should be talking about this, well, there's a number of reasons. But one, there's been a lot of articles in the, in the press in the last few months about how, how high rents are for, for millennials, for citizens, for families, anybody that's, that's renting or forced to be a renter. Rents are incredibly high for well, Miami-Dade County. 65%. percent Sixty-five percent of Miami's residential real estate is rented, and about thirty-five percent is owner-occupied. Nationally, that number is almost reversed. I think something like fifty-nine percent uh, yeah, is is owned by individuals, residential exactly. property. That's a that's a very important point. Now, if if people that have a homestead exemption say that thirty-five percent of the populace that own their own homes, they get a lower tax rate because of the um, homestead exemption that's provided to them. But the 65% of the people that are either renting or maybe they own a, a small store or a small warehouse or a, an office building, their taxes, some of them are going to look at, are going to see significant tax increases this year and next year. While a homeowner might not notice a big tax increase in their bill, but as you just said, they're only 35% of the taxpayers. That's right. They are only 35%. Until until a few years ago, there was absolutely no cap on the amount that uh, rental property could be assessed and raised in assessment. That's right. Now there's a there's a cap of 10% on commercial property. And in the past, you know, you know we, Miami goes through, and Florida goes through boom and bust cycles. In a boom cycle, taxes could sometimes go up 30 or 40% from one year to the next because of the boom and bust cycle. Now it's limited to 10%. And, and many people will be looking at you know, hitting that cap every year, a 10% tax increase for the, possibly for the foreseeable future if they, if they own um, 
income-producing property. Now, now let me say this. That is that those, those increased taxes are passed on to the residents and tourists and, and renters. Well, especially renters. And let me just say, the national homeownership rate, I just looked this up, it's mm-hmm. 63.4%. So almost two-thirds of homes nationally are owned by the people who live there, but in Miami it's almost opposite. And I'm going to describe a phenomenon that, that I had struggled with and I finally found a bank um, in my professional sphere because, as you know, if you listen to the show, the show is underwritten by Morningside Mortgage Corporation, which is a mortgage company that I have run since uh, 2005. And we work with Quicken Home Loans, and they're the first bank I know of that actually eliminated what's called the 50% rule in condominiums. And this has been a big issue um, for starter homes because many starter homes in South Florida are condominiums, one and two and three bedroom apartments. They're not as big as houses. They're communal dwellings. And up until maybe just a couple of months ago, you could not get a condo loan if more than 50% of the units were owned by investors. But when you think about the fact that two-thirds of Miami's residential real estate is owned by investors, where could you actually get that loan anymore? Yep. So this is kind of a big deal that there's maybe a little warming in the condominium market um, for actual owner-occupants. But but like you're describing, this is a very difficult environment for renters, and it's causing uh, rental increases disproportionate to, uh, you know, renters' actual, I mean, the value, it's just like, okay, you know, the, the, the people who live in a home, they're allowed to stay virtually forever, and their taxes almost depreciate over time because they're raised so low. So how do we find a way past this? How can this be changed? Well, the, the Miami Herald did a, a, a very good series, a very good story recently about home ownership and how difficult it is for families to get that starter home, whether it's a, a condo or a small house in a neighborhood that they want to live in with, with a school system that they find attractive for their families. And it's very difficult for them to to accumulate the down payment necessary, you know, to meet the lender's requirements as the prices escalate, as their down payments get eaten away by escalating taxes, both at the county level and the municipal municipal government level. It's very true. It's a very, very trying real estate and economic problem we have in South Florida. Uh, well, you're, you're in the mortgage business. What do, what do um, you know, smaller borrowers tell you about the their difficulty in accumulating down payments. Well, if that was actually the problem, I'd hear about it a lot. But the bigger issue is that the new Dodd-Frank requirements, the the National Mortgage Lending Act that was passed, and not just mortgage lending, but the Consumer Protection Act that was passed, um, actually is locking a lot of consumers out of the homeownership market as a whole, and we're going to talk about it when we come back. We'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. on the scene. 
fuck is me? The crowd parts like the sea. They can look, but a touch they can only dream. He loves a challenge, so he licks his lips. He's inspired by her arrogance. His first words make her body tense. She can't leave because she feels his strength. Now she can't help but listen. But she's down to her last defense. she says, why you being so persistent? He says, I speak what I want into existence. She never heard a man talk like this. Never seen somebody so confident. Driven to the point of death. Guess what he wants, even if it means no rest. With the sweetest taste, he left her heart with a warm embrace. He took her mind to another place, and the effects lasted for days. No ordinary love story exists that could illustrate how the spark was lit, and why his love gave a spirit a lift. The puzzle piece just perfectly fits. But with the sunshine came the rain, pouring down great clouds of pain. Everything started to change. After that, he was never the same. Still bound to the very end. With the power within All the fears blew away with the wind She was stronger than she'd ever been Oh, welcome back This is the Only in Miami show And I'm your host, Grant Stern You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern And everything about the show at OnlyInMiami.co iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more Check it out at OnlyInMiami.co And we're back live with Peter Ehrlich He is one of the board members on the Urban Environment League And Scenic Miami Peter, thank you so much for joining us on the program Thank you, Grant, my pleasure Well, you know, usually we start out with me asking the questions, but you asked me a really great question, and I wanted to expound on the answer because it's actually really important, and it's very troubling to me as a mortgage professional. Um, for those who may not know, I run a mortgage company called Morningside Mortgage. It underwrites this program. And one of the things that truly upsets me about the state of the housing market today, and it's affecting South Floridians and Miamians in particular, is that with the change in regulations the smaller loans have fallen completely out of favor. So you asked if people are having trouble saving up down payments, but the fact is they're having trouble finding houses that fit the down payment they can save. If there's a fifty or sixty or eighty thousand dollar house, it's virtually impossible to find financing for that because the fees associated with those loans and the interest rates are restricted. So banks simply raise the minimum loan amount and lock people out of those markets. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's a practice that used to be called redlining, where banks would say, hmm, well, we're going to draw a red line here, and we're going to cut whatever is on the other side of this red line out of our service area, kind of like what Cardigo did with their transportation service, which I would call transportation redlining. Cardigo decided that the city of Miami Beach was very profitable, and then they decided that Little Havana was not profitable enough, so they said, we're going to draw a red line on the map here. All this stuff to the west, we're cutting out. All this stuff to this other neighborhood, we're bringing in. And and in in lending, it's even worse. It's just if you're above 100000 um, as far as the loan amount, you can probably find some financing. Really, you need to almost be above 150000 If you're below 100000 it's very difficult to find a loan today. And that explains a lot of the problems 
that people in South Florida have because housing prices went way below 100000 for many homes all over South Florida. Um, one of the other tro- problems is that it's incredibly expensive for developers to build low-priced homes. Why is that? Well, there's a couple reasons. Um, one is their permit fees and fees that they have to pay to 15 or 20 city and county departments end up being incredibly expensive, sometimes 15, 20, 22% of a project. And those are fees to Miami-Dade County Water and Sewer, um, a city building department, city fire department, um, city planning, and city zoning department. Every every department hits developers up for separate projects for all for the same, separate fees all for the same project. And they end up you know, being very expensive, which the developer you know, has to pass on to the consumer in order to in order to break even or have a profit. Well, have we hit the point where Miami's governance structure has simply um, not grown with the population and the scope of development? Do we need to make a structural change to the way that the city or county or both are being run today? Yes, I, th- I think a, a, definitely a strong case should be made that municipal government should be forced to do more with less. You know, they can't keep escalating taxes and fees year in and year out. Well, where are the du- the points of duplication? Where where are the items that can be cut out because they're really administrative in nature and not service or safety in nature? In other words, like uh, you know, impact fees that need to be paid to multiple uh, you know, to to multiple jurisdictions. Jurisdictions, yeah. You know, governmental organizations. Uh, wh- um, where are these duplications? Well, you know, undoubtedly, you know, consultants would have to be brought in, experts would have to be brought in, independent, of course, and do and do the analysis. It's possible that you know cities, some cities, should be abolished and just and just um, wrapped into the county system. Can you name one or two of these? Oh, I don't. I don't know. I. I'd rather not have to drive around with a armed guard. <laughs> there, there may be some smaller municipalities that would, you know, benefit from being abolished and being absorbed into the county system. Well, the the county, Miami-Dade County. For many who do not know, I did not learn about this until I was in my. Uh, more than 30th year of residence here, and I thought I knew all that stuff. But Miami-Dade County has a special home rule charter, and it allows the county to step in and provide virtually any service that a city does not want to provide. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, it, a, that's a good example. Any city that has its own fire department or police department could abolish the separately funded, separately staffed police and fire department and, and contract those services from the county where there may be, they may very well get economies of scale and some efficiencies that will be beneficial to not only the taxpayers, but also the residents. Well, I mean, it doesn't mean that they lose all local control, though, right? No, the control would be contractual by contract with the county. Right. So if a city were to decide to abolish its police department, like let's say Sweetwater decided that their police department had too many problems enforcing all the laws that they need to enforce. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say upon who they have those problems, but let's just say that the Sweetwater Police Department said, um, 
we can't do this anymore. They could have a Sweetwater branch of the county police, right? Yes, the county would operate out of the public, you know, not only the Miami-Dade County Police Headquarters, but a local, local they'd take over the Sweetwater Police Station. Right, but it's like they would actually have their own dedicated force of officers, correct? Like, I think, yeah. I think yeah. Palmetto Bay does that. Community, community policing on sort of a bigger scale. Right, right. but it's, it's like it's not one of these things where, okay, now you're part of the county. Now you're part of this huge, huge pool, and, you know, if uh, there's officers out and, you know, three, four, five miles away that can't get to it, well, you know, just you're part of this county pool. It's like, no, if you have a, a municipal division— you actually have a dedicated force that's out of your station house that stays in your community. That's correct, right? Yes. So so why haven't more cities opted for that if it's a, a good option? In some cases, local police or fire departments object because their pay and benefits are better staying where they are within that specific city. Well, for example, the the head of Miami's police union was on the program, uh, I want to say, three or four weeks ago, and he said that the pay was so much better at Miami-Dade County that they were losing officers to Miami-Dade County. Even for a large city like the city of Miami, does it make sense to consider that kind of option to say, well, if the county is paying better, maybe all these guys, the, the, the best of the bunch should go, you know, staff a county department that polices the city of Miami? Is, is that a smart way to go? Yes, and what you're describing, you know, the president of the local FOP union made a good case for abolishing the city of Miami Police Department and being absorbed by Miami-Dade County Police. He did? By saying that the county pays better. It's true. The county does pay better. And then there would be some efficiencies of scale. You need you have one chief of police instead of two, and, and two deputies instead of five. On, on and on down the down the, the line of command. Well, have you been keeping up with the the city of Coral Gables police situation, where the city manager attempted to appoint two chiefs of police, and they wound up with one? I, I've just seen some articles about it. It seems a little chaotic. It does. It certainly does. Um, I mean, certainly, like many communities want to have their own police force, but. At what point does maintaining that police force force those officers to cross the line between law enforcement officers and revenue collection agents? Those are those are tough questions. We all know we've all heard about the little police forces in the South that drive all their revenues from ticketing, you know, tourists going up and down uh, the East Coast. Are they revenue agents or are they actually you know policing their communities? That's an important question. Well, there's been times where I've been pulled over by the city of Miami police, and I feel like it's just a general dragnet. They're just pulling over everybody that drives through that stop sign. Mm -hmm. But we're getting back to the macroeconomic issue. Um, you know, many people feel that taxes and fees are just too high, and there has to be a, a, a much more of an effort by elected officials and municipal officials to um, do more with less not just keep you know, looking to the taxpayers for these ever and ever increases. I mean, the Miami-Dade County total budget from $6.2 billion to $6.8 billion in one year. Well, I agree with you. I think it's also one of the things that makes Florida an attractive place to be and do business. 
which is that our government and agencies are not overbearing at in certain regards they they strive to be efficient and do their job and not simply create more work um but i mean where do we find you know cuz a lot of fat was trimmed um during the downturn where do we find the fat where is the fat today well in um the city of miami approximately 72% of all the revenues going to the general fund go right out to the paying benefits for the employees. So so over, so almost three-quarters of what the city of Miami pays is solely in labor cost. That's right, paying benefits, labor costs. So only one quarter is left to you know, keep the lights on and uh, you know, fix the sewers and roads. Is there a typical ratio for how much cities spend in? Uh, well, in the private sector, you know, you try to keep your pay and benefits at, uh, you know, forty or forty-five percent or, or less. Um, it's the ratio in Miami-Dade County is a little less. Um, City of Miami, I think it's about sixty percent of the general operating fund revenues go to pay and benefits. Um, so. You know, whenever the union budgets come up for negotiation, there's you know there's always a big battle over the pay and the extremely complicated you know, benefit plans that are offered to union employees. So, Peter, where can our audience catch up with you online after the show if they want to talk about this more? Um, well, I, I guess they could uh, contact me through the Only in Miami show or on Twitter. Oh, yes, I am on Twitter. I think it's Peter Ehrlich One. That's Peter Ehrlich One. And uh, where can they find out more about uh, Scenic Miami? Scenic Miami, scenicmiami.org. That organization was founded to fight the proliferation of illegal billboards and visual pollution in Miami Dade County. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the program, Peter. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for tonight. We'll be back next Monday night. This is the Only in Miami show.